0: The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC is available online at www.overlandpark.cc. It's good to see you here uh, today as we land this series, No More No Less, as we've been talking about the Bible and how it's reliable. It's a historical document that is just incredible. It has all of this evidence to support it, most um, supported evidence of any ancient document, that we have. And so it's a fascinating study. I hope it's been encouraging to you, as it certainly has uh, been to me. <clears throat> but uh, we've been talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, we've been talking about a solo scriptura, how it, um, no more, no less than the Bible. What the Bible teaches us, we're going to do any anything more than what it teaches, but we don't want to do anything less. We don't want to try to change it to fit um, what we we think it should be. We want to trust what it is because God has preserved it over time for us so that we could know um, who he is and how to know him and how to follow him and bring honor and glory to him. So I don't know um, if you are like me and you're sort of a news hack. I love to know what's going on. I like to watch the news. Uh, I watch several news programs and and follow that stuff because I, I just enjoy it. But if you are like me, and you do some of that, and you've watched some of the news, I'm sure you've heard of the, uh, about the Green New Deal. You heard about that? Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> uh, so the Green New Deal is this um, objective to try to get to uh, zero-based emissions uh, and <clears throat> to really lower our carbon footprint and do all of this stuff uh, to protect uh, the planet uh, by the year 2030, pretty ambitious uh, uh, goal there. And you've got um, liberal people uh, from politically they're liberal, and you've got conservative people, and they sort of line up on different sides. And so, uh, for those of you who are going, "Oh no, Jimmy, don't go there," <clears throat> we're not going there today, okay? But this this does beg the question: like, should we love the planet? That's a great question for us to think about as followers of Jesus. Should we love the planet itself? And so today, I'm not going to talk to you about the Green New Deal, but I am going to talk to you about the Green Old Deal, okay? And so as we look at Scripture, there's some very interesting things. Uh, Thank you, Q. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, But you could have brought it all the way up here to me. I mean, uh, no, no. I'm fine, I'm fine. (laughs) Never want to miss an opportunity to bust someone's chops, right? Come on, yeah, bring it on up here. Everybody say, everybody give it up for Q. Yeah. Thank you, Quentin. Uh, I really didn't need this, but since he brought it, I'll take a drink. Okay, so um, as, as followers of Jesus, like when we talk about this green old deal. Like it's important for us to uh, be able to share our faith. We want our friends to know, um, especially if we're walking in the freedom of Christ, which is what I hope you are doing, as a body of believers. That is so important that we don't appear to be religious people, but that we are people, man. That that um, man, we're just walking in the freedom of the Lord Jesus Christ because we have discovered who He is as the God of the universe. And uh, man, he's just, he, he brings all of this incredible um, life, just life, you know, the ability to live life to its fullest and to work through difficult circumstances, whether things are great or things are terrible. We don't walk through them alone. We share them with the Lord and he helps us in the midst of them. And so that creates in us, um, if we really have been born again, it creates a desire for our people to know that transformation for for them to experience it themselves. And so we want to see them come to the Lord. And this is a very important time as we move toward um, Easter for you to be able to invite friends to church. They're more apt to come to church with you here in a few weeks than they are at any other time of the year. So it's a great time for you to be inviting. People are thinking about it already. They're going to be making Easter plans. So it's a great opportunity for you to expose them to OPCC, your family. And I hope that you think of our church that way. You inviting your friends to come to church with you should be no different than you inviting them over to your home for for dinner. It's just a, it's a spiritual family. They're welcome here. We want people to come and be a part of, of what God is doing in our midst. And so it's a, that's a great way to sort of evangelize and, and bring them under the sound of the gospel and, and expose them to some new relationships that the Lord could use um, to help them discover who He is. So this begs the question... Um, how do we go about evangelism? Okay, now I know it seems like you, you men you were talking about the green deal here. Now you're talking about evangelism. Where and it'll all make sense in a minute. At least it will to me. <laughs> okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to go back to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, and and Jesus he teaches this parable, and it has to do with evangelism. And so we can learn some things about okay, how do we Practice evangelism and and sharing our faith with our friends. What's a good strategy according to Jesus? So if we we go to Luke, um, Luke chapter sixteen, there, verse nineteen. I'm going to just read this parable. Now in this parable, Jesus Jesus is using a parable. He's telling a story about for us to learn something very important. Again, and it has to do with um, how people will come into the kingdom. And he says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And at his gate was a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. There's a mental picture for you, right? Right? This dude had it bad. Now this is not the same Lazarus that Jesus brought back from the dead that he was friends with. This is a story that Jesus is telling here. And so it says the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And so he's contrasting these two different lives is what he's doing. And it says in hell." The the rich man in hell where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. So one of the things we can see very clearly that Jesus is teaching is that no one faces annihilation at death. We are all eternal beings. And there's a destination that each person will go. And so this person went to the place that all of you want to a- avoid. Amen? All right. Yeah, I hope you can get an amen there. Golly. <laughs> and so it says, uh, so he's, he's calling out. He can see and he's in he's in torment. He's in agony. But he can see over on the other side. And he says, Abraham, uh, Ab- but Abraham, and, he, and he's, 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 apply- he's, he's begging now. As the, Lazarus did all of his life, he's begging and saying, may you just send him to give me just a drop of water. And Abraham replied, son, remember in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. It's a terrible picture uh, of eternity. And so he answered and he says, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. It's a picture of what Jesus is about to do when he goes to the cross. He's saying, man, if they won't, if they won't listen to Moses and prophets, they're not going to listen to this. And, and the guy was asking for a miracle in order to convince his brothers that we're still living in this parable um, that teaches us something. It teaches us about how people will come into the kingdom according to Jesus. And this is, again, why we go back to the word and we say we cannot Start messing with the word. We cannot start tinkering with the word and saying, well, this part of the word is not relevant for culture anymore. According to Jesus, the word is essential for a person to come into the kingdom. And we know even when we look at Jesus that he is called by uh, John, his best friend in the gospel of John, he is called the logos. God, he is the word and the word came and dwelt among us. He is the word incarnate. What does that mean? It it means that all that we learn in the Bible is found in Jesus in human flesh. And so with the word in that sense, we can see that we know a a lot about um, theology and who God is from the word. And so we have to realize that the word is the key to unlocking evangelism, because if people will not listen to the word, they will not listen to miracles. That's basically what Jesus is saying. If they're not going to listen to the miracle of the word, they're not going to listen to the miracle of a person who rises from the dead. And that's exactly what we have in our culture today, is that people not only we look at them and go, they're, not, they're denying the resurrection of Christ, they're denying the very word of God. And so Jesus said this very thing would be a problem when it comes to evangelism. So that tells us that the, the word is the key to unlocking evangelism in someone's life. And as I think about my own life, I think about the importance that the Word played in my my commitment to the Lord. Um, I I became a Christian when I was nine years old, surrendered my life to the Lord, and started reading the Bible a little bit because I, I knew that I'd been challenged that you're supposed to do that, and plus I saw my mom do it. Moms take a cue there. I saw my mom do it, and I just mocked what she did. My mom had, men. she had things underlined in her Bible all over. And so I would like when she, they would go over when I was a little kid, they would, they would go over to my aunt and uncle's and it was my, actually my great aunt and uncle. And so no cousins over there a lot of times. And so I would have to find something to do. And I remember one time in particular that I took my Bible that my mom bought me and I took her Bible and I just went through and everything she had underlined, I underlined. <laughs> <laughs> but at least I was in there, right? I wasn't uh, real deep, but I, I just felt like, man, that's what you're supposed to do. Um, and so anyway, I, at, at at about 15 years of age, I sort of put all of that stuff aside, right? Because it was, there was no time for Jimmy or Jesus. This was all about Jimmy now. And that was a very destructive time in my life, a time that I regret even to this day that I, I can't get back. But at 22, When I turned 22, my mom gifted me for my birthday uh, uh, some stuff. I don't remember what it was, but one thing was a Bible, and she wrote something in the front of it. And for some reason, I started to read that Bible, even though I was living a very sinful lifestyle at the time. And I got into the Word, and as I got into the Word, it did something amazing in my life. And, and so that's what we're going to talk about today as we now think about Jesus saying, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets and the law, they won't listen to a miracle. And so when we think in terms of evangelism, the word, when, when Jesus says Moses and the prophets, he's referring to the Old Testament, okay? So that is the written holy scriptures of Jesus' day. What about the New Testament? Jesus authorized the writing of the New Testament. He is God. It is a new covenant with God, and he used the apostles to write it, and we've, we've verified this. This is why miracles were possible for the apostles, and they don't exist today like they did then. Do miracles still happen? Yes, um, but they don't happen like they did in the New Testament. Like, we don't have people having the ability to go and and heal people who are bl- are paralyzed or blind and, and, and the, the apostles could do that now why would God enable them to do that so that what they wrote could be trusted because we know that a normal man couldn't do what they did without supernatural power. so it authenticates the writing of the word. and so now our Bible, which is composed of 66 books of the old we have the Old Testament, we have the New Testament. And it gives us the Word of God that can be trusted. And so again, um, for those of you, if if this is your first week here, it's the last week of this series, I can't go back and unpack all of that. But you can go back and watch all of that and learn for yourself um, that Christianity is not a blind leap in the dark. It is a faith that is based on evidence. And you do not need to commit intellectual suicide to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings of the Bible. Like the Bible, is a, it's, it's an incredible document in history. And so I'd encourage you to take the time to go back and look at, at, at some of those uh, uh, teachings to help you and bolster up your faith. And so when we look at this and we think, okay, Jesus is saying the word is the key to unlocking evangelism in a person's life. Now I want us to go back to um, some of the law and the prophets and we're gonna look at Psalm 19. Now, we looked at a few verses of Psalm 19, I think, in week one, which was a long time ago, and I don't even remember what I said, so you don't either, so we'll just talk about it again, right? And so in Psalm chapter 19, we have this incredible, one of the most beautiful poems that has ever been written, and it is a poem of David, and David was used to write this psalm, and it's it's, a, it's beautiful. Just listen to the first six va- verses as I read it to you, and I, I'm going I'm to teach you a few things uh, that I think are pretty cool. It says, the heavens, like, and, and as I read this poem, like try to picture the things as David says them. So like the heavens, we're thinking about all that is in the sky. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth, from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. And so when we look at this, we take these first six verses of Psalm chapter 19, we we deal with the question about should we love the world? And the answer is we should love the world because it is God's general revelation and it points to him. Like God created the world and as we look at the world and as we look at all of the creation in it and all of its beauty and all of its splendor, this is general revelation that consistently points to God regardless of where you're at on the planet. So a lot of times we look at we go well what? What about people who don't have churches on the other side of the world? They have a moon. They have sun, the sun. They have stars. They have birds. They have all of God's creation. And according to Psalm 19, that it, 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 there's no speech in it, but it, it, it continues to declare um, day after day. It pours forth speech. Night after night, what does it do? It displays knowledge. And so it's teaching us about God. If we will just look at creation itself. And David uses the word here. um, When he talks about God, he says, the heavens declare the glory of God. He uses the Hebrew word El. And it is only used once in these first um, six verses. He only uses it one time. And it is the most generic name that you could use for God. A lot of times when I'm teaching... Um, I really try to be intentional when I'm talking or teaching and talking to people or I'm teaching on the stage like I'm doing today or I'm talking to someone at Starbucks and the the conversation begins to turn about the things of the Lord, then I usually use the word Lord or I try to be very intentional and say Jesus because Jesus is very pointed about who we're talking about as God. Most of the people in the world believe in some form of God. Okay? I want to make sure we're talking about the same God here, so I talk about Jesus a lot. And that's important for you to do. But here, David is intentionally using the word El, which is a generic term for God. And so it would just be, uh, the the Jews believed in a, a, mono. they were monotheistic, so they believed in one God, and he's just saying there. There is a God out there, and we can look at all of nature, and it points to him. From nature, David is is showing us, we can know about him. And if we look at nature, it just screams of intelligent design. It screams it. You you just look, man. You, You hold a newborn baby, and you watch that baby come out of the womb, and it will blow your mind five times it's happened to me the first time like <laughs> I was not prepared and it's a total transformation of the uh, of a human being when that happens to you it just it's mind boggling to watch a, a new baby come into the world it, it's mind boggling to watch a new animal come into the world i remember um when i think on my 10th birthday my my dad had cows and we had a, a, a calf that was born on my birthday, and I watched the birth with binoculars laying out in the pasture. Just blew my mind. Uh, you, can, you can go fishing and catch a fish and pull a fish out of the water and just look at it and think, well, this must have been an accident. Not like you can watch the seasons. Watch the trees come to life right now. Watch them all pour forth the speech of new life. Watch them scream at us about the resurrection as they begin to leaf out and everything turns green. And you can, you can watch the sun rise in the morning and you can watch it set in the evening. And you can just, like, you, you, you've got to look at it and go, man, there is, there is something behind all of this. For a person to come to the conclusion that there's nothing behind it, I just, like, I I can't even fathom how you would do that. My mind won't let me go there. Um, even, Even scientists now must come up with a theory that says there was something that started it all. They call it the Big Bang. And then all of a sudden, they seem to be incredibly intelligent. But something had to start that. And so we look at the world, man, and we can see something is behind this. Like something, I can look at my own life. I can look at my own body. I can look at my own self and see how intricately I'm designed. And see, man, there is a designer behind this. There's so much in the world that just continues to scream at us that God is real. And that's what David is saying in these first six verses. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion like a champion rejoicing to run his course it rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other nothing is hidden from its heat David Simon just look around just look around and think about it for just a moment and you can see that God is speaking to us from creation and so we should love the world because it it points us to the one true God but then in verse seventeen there is a changing of gears. Things are shifted dramatically. And if some have studied this passage and they, they see the shift and they believe, um, they've tried to uh, like propose that this should be two different Psalms because they're so different. But David is intentionally, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's, he's going through it. He's, he's doing something. He's writing about something much like um, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote about and Peter wrote about when it says all prophecy is not, it's not, a, it's not a matter of a man's doing, um, that it comes from God. Uh, Paul says that he is God-breathed, that God is behind the man. And so probably David, when he's writing this poem and he's captivated and the Holy Spirit is, is moving in his life, he doesn't even realize how important what he's about to write as he shifts gears is. Because now he's going to shift in verse 7, and he's going to teach us something very significant about um, the specific revelation of God. So he starts to move from creation to talk about the very word of God, the law of God. Listen to what he says. There's incredible parallelism um, and the the rhythm in this um, psalm. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern the errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Here's the second takeaway. We should love the word more than the world because it introduces us to God. So yes, we should love the world. And we should look at it and care for it. And we should do all that we can to preserve it and protect it and be good stewards. As a matter of fact, the the word even teaches us to do that. When God created the first humans and he placed them in the garden, he said, be fruitful and multiply and subdue this. Like be over all of this. Manage it. That is the original intent from the God of the universe. We should be people who are concerned about the environment because it points to him. It is his creation but we should love the word more than the world because it introduces us to him. And remember how we talked about specific revelation that God gives us how through history, and through writing, he has preserved specifically who he is and what he's like through this nation of Israel, and part of it is what we've just read. And, and David says that we are to love the word, the law and the prophets, because it points to God. Here, David shifts gears in the word that he uses for God. He no longer is using the word El, which, uh, and he doesn't move just from El to Elohim. He moves to the word Jehovah. And now he uses the word seven times. And so there's a, there's a shift in what the specific revelation will do. And, and this is the same word, Jehovah, that was used at the burning bush with Moses. Who do I say that has sent me, God? And God speaks to Moses, and remember, Jesus said if they don't believe the law and the prophets, they won't believe if somebody rises from the dead. And what, what, did, what does God respond to Moses at the burning bush? You say that I am has sent you. One of the reasons that they crucified Jesus and wanted to execute, execute him and, and said he was being blasphemous because then he says at this statement in the New Testament, before Abraham was, I am. He equates himself with the same God. And so here, David is using this particular word, this name for God, the word uh, named Jehovah. And it is the covenant name of God. And what he's saying to us is that we can know the Lord through covenant relationship. That we don't just know about God through general revelation, we know Um, God intimately through specific revelation which is a covenant relationship with God as our Jehovah and and we see that it is a call to obedience and submission to the word and the word has a powerful thing that it can do and again we go back to Jesus as the logos in uh, John chapter one in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and, and so the, the, there's a Greek word that is used there in the first chapter of John. It is the word exegesato, and it means it is the way, word we get our, our, our word exegesis from. We exegete a text, which is what I'm doing right now. I'm explaining a text to you. I'm exegeting it. I'm telling you what it, what it says, what it means. And so Jesus is the exegesis of God. He is the word incarnate. And so we look to the word, and the word points to Jesus. We look to Jesus, and Jesus... Jesus points to God. He shows us what God is like. How can we know about Jesus? By reading his word. And so like the specific revelation begins to have an impact on our lives. And verse six is very fascinating to me. Because verse six, going back to the general revelation says, uh, speaking of the sun, it says it rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. And nothing is hidden from its heat. That makes sense. Like, nothing is hidden from the heat of the sun. It causes things to grow. And the longer the days and the warmer the earth gets, then the more things grow and flourish. They come out of their dormant state. And we, we, see, um, we see the incredible um, creation and design of the Lord in all of life and all of, that we have in biology and, and how important the sun is to that. And so it says that nothing is hidden from it. And so we, we, we look at that, what the son is to the world, the word is to the soul. I'm reminded of Hebrews. He says, nothing in all of creation is hidden from God. And he's talking about the word and he says, man, it, 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 everything is laid bare. It is opened up. Nothing hides from the word. It is kind of like what I was teaching you last week, man. The word will, it will get a hold of you. It will start to move in you and it'll work in your life like the sun. And what is happening if you leave the word on the bookshelf is the sun is never revolving around your life. And so no growth is happening. And so you're just stuck in winter. You're just stuck in dormancy. But as you open the word and you begin to pour it over your life, you begin to realize there's growth happening all around me. And you go through these seasons and that growth is developed by the heat of the word being applied to your life and bringing the warmth that provides comfort and the, the stretching that provides uh, the growth and all of these things start happening in your life as the word does what it is designed to do. And so there's some of that that's happening right now, even as, as I'm teaching to you and preaching um, the word to you there is there is some sun, the sun of the word is being shed on your life and it's beginning to move upon you. And that's great. Like that, like you should be commended. We should come together. We should celebrate how we could be stretched and challenged. But how much more necessary it is for the word to have a daily impact on our lives. Going back to my testimony, remember I said that that's what helped me to figure out I was living a lie in my life was the word. I started to read the word and the word started to do its work on me and it started to shape me and shift me. And I've been reading the word ever since. Why? Because it blows my mind. The more I read of it, the more I learn about God. I mean, it is, it, I, you know, I'm so encouraged and, and I, I, I love to come and I love to teach you guys on a weekly basis. Okay. I love that. And, but the, and my, my prayer is that you receive the word and you grow from it. But I cannot tell you the benefit I receive personally from working in the word and preparing to teach it to you. What it does in my own life, how it helps me to um, like just live the best possible life that I could possibly be experiencing. Whether I'm at a high or a low, it is the word that is keeping me um, sane in this world and helping me to make sense of all that is around me. And so what's the deal? Well, I know what you're doing. I know that you're thinking about the Royals game and March Madness and like, what do I got? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven points in a big idea. I'm going to show you the miracle of fast speech. All we're going to do is look at what the what it says it does. Watch this. Verse 7. The word is perfect and it revives the soul. Like all I've been talking about in my own uh, personal uh, experience is my soul being revived. The the scripture teaches us that we cannot come to the Lord unless the Lord draws us unto himself. And then there has to be a time of laying our lives down and we are born again. We are born spiritually. We germinate. We are all dead in our sin and trespasses. But as we learn the word and the word is proclaimed and the foolishness, as Paul says, of the preaching of the gospel happens, then people come to know the Lord. Because the Word is being proclaimed over their lives, and they're believing it. And So we're not saying we worship the Word. We're saying we worship the one the Word teaches us about. And as we look at the specific revelation, which is the historical record that God has given us so that we could know Him instead of just knowing about Him, so we could look at the sun, and we could look at the moon, and we could look at the plants, and we could look at the birds, and the animals, and all of these other things, and they would tell us there is a creator behind all of this, and it should drive us to a conclusion that we we want to know who that creator is. Well, guess what? That creator has told us, this is who I am. And he is supernaturally preserved for over thousands of years. This thing we call the Bible that teaches us specifically who he is. And as we read it, it brings a, a reviving to the soul and the dead soul that is dead in our sins and trespasses re- discovers the forgiveness of God and the beauty of Jesus. And we receive him as the personal sacrifice for, our sins and our souls are revived in Christ. And we come to know him. The word is trustworthy and makes wise the simple. Now that I've come to know him with my soul being revived, I have a hunger to know more about him if I know him. Just as I have a hunger to know about someone I'm in love with as my wife, and I want to know more about her, and I want her to know more about me, I have a hunger to see those things happen. Then I have a hunger to see more of who the Lord is. And as I am driven to the word to get that hunger satisfied, I'm reminded of Jesus saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And so I am filled and it starts to make me wise, even though I may be a simple person. Caitlin and I had a discussion this week. Caitlin is my second daughter. She is in fifth grade. Our discussion was around the existence and nature of evil and the free will of man. And the discussion was brought up by her, not me. I'm talking to a fifth grader about some of the deepest philosophical questions of humanity and it is all was wrapped up in evangelism with her friends and her being in the word it has taken the simple and bringing wisdom into it. It will teach you how to manage your finances. It will teach you how to be the spouse you are to be. It will teach you how to be a great business uh, owner. It will teach you how to lead in the place of employment that you're at. It'll teach you how to be a better mom, a better dad. It will do all of these things. It is the word because it takes the simple and makes them wise. The word is right and makes the heart rejoice. So now as I've not only been revived in my soul and I'm realizing I'm becoming from a simple person to a wise person because I'm learning about the things of God, my soul can't help but rejoice. And you know what that is an indication of? That that is teaching us the same thing that Jesus taught us. That if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. So as I sit in the word, fruit will grow in my life. And the apostle Paul, Paul taught us the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. He lists nine different character traits out there that are all wrapped up in Jesus, who is the word incarnate. And he says, as I sit with the Lord, the fruit will grow in my life. And David is here saying to us hundreds of years before that the word is right and makes the heart rejoice. It will put joy in me that is unspeakable and full of glory. And that's what makes life livable. That's where the abundant life that Jesus talks about comes in. But not only that, the word is radiant and gives light to the eyes. What does that mean? It means that it, it, it brings illumination to dark places. And so it shows me how to take the next step in life and guides me. And we all get so concerned as believers. We're so concerned about doing the will of God. And so the word will give us light to help us know what the will of God is. Sometimes we might be looking at a person and going, um, maybe we're dating and we're going, well, I want to make sure I do the will of God and stay true to what God wants me to do. And uh, you know, I've got these two people in my life that I'm starting to like, I'm interested in and they're interested in me. And which one is God's will for me to, um, you know, begin a relationship with? How do I know God's will? It's very simple the fact of the matter is, is if you're not being disobedient to God, either one of them could be God's will because you have free will to choose. But if candidate A doesn't care anything about the things of the Lord, doesn't, isn't a follower of Jesus and candidate B is, I'm going to tell you that the will of God is candidate B because that is a person who will not be unequally yoked with you and will help you to move through in life. And so we could look at all these different things, and a lot of times there is freedom in our decisions. What the Word is going to guide us in is how do we avoid being disobedient and rebellious people to God. And sometimes there are multiple choices um, that we could choose, and none of them are wrong. And God gives us the freedom to choose in them as long as none of them lead us into disobedience or we're being disobedient in any of them so the word is, is radiant. It gives light to the eyes. And not only in its radiance does it guide us, it, it, it pushes us away from evil. It moves evil away from our lives. The word is pure and endures forever. And by that, I, I think that, that David is just talking about how corrupt things decay. If there is corruption in something, it just ultimately decays. But notice how one of the miracles of the Bible is is it's still around, even though People, philosophers throughout the ages have tried intentionally. Kings and different leaders have tried to destroy it and get rid of it. And the attack is still being waged today. Change the word. This part doesn't fit our culture. And I say to you, back off. Like, don't touch the word. Like, you're being heretical. And I don't mean you guys. I'm talking about a person, okay? A person is being heretical when they start messing with the Word of God. It has not been messed with since we have gotten it, and that is what makes it so incredible. It is not an encyclopedia. It is God-breathed. And when a man stands up and begins to say the church has got it for wrong for thousands of years, we ought to be going, whoa, whoa, whoa. And we're not. Your friends are just diving deep into it. And if you don't learn anything about it, you're never going to be able to make a defense for the hope that is in you. And that is the very thing that the word calls you to be able to do is to be a responsible person who makes a defense for the gospel and begins to stand up and say, whoa, you really believe that? Half of the people, I'm convinced most of the people that are just in this aren't really thinking about it. And the reason I've taken six weeks to go through this apologetic series is because I do not want the people that I'm responsible for not to be able to think critically about what they believe. It is very, very important. And the word is pure and it endures forever. It will never pass away. Jesus said it wouldn't pass away. The, The word is sure and it trains us in righteousness. We talked a lot about this last week, but that's the dichiosine, that what it is about a person that makes them really good. It's true inner goodness, and that only comes from the Lord. And I, I showed you how part of the word out of 2 Timothy is to teach us. It trains us in righteousness. It shows us how to be what we are. And so I won't take time today uh, to, to go through that one because we already did it last week. And then, and then finally, the word is precious, sweet, and it warns and rewards that's what verse 10 and 11 say. And so we look at that and we go, man, if I, if I look at it and I see how precious it is, I see how sweet it is, it will warn me about things that I need to avoid. It'll, it'll show me how to walk. And as I walk in that, it will produce rewards in my life from the Father who is behind it all. And that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is that we're don't just we not just people who go to church. We're people who know the Lord. We're people who walk with the Lord. We're people who yield in obedience. We're, we're people who know that sometimes the Lord asks us hard things to do, and we need brothers and sisters around us to help us to take those steps into that sacrificial obedience and watch the fruit begin to grow in our lives. And so this is what we can expect from the Word as we eat it daily. And so the big idea is this the green old deal is God. G-O-D. The world points to God in general revelation. So we should love the world and everything in it. We should protect the creation of the Lord. We should be people who are concerned about the environment. But more, we should be people of the word. It's okay to love the world as long as we love the word more. And if we love the world more than we love the word, we begin worshiping the creature instead of the creator, which is what Paul said not to do in Romans chapters one and two. It's a very dangerous thing and is where our culture is right now. It's upside down. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Millions upon millions of dollars are raised and spent to take care of Abused animals, neglected animals, like millions. Now, should we do that? Sure, they're the creation of the Lord. And so we do those things, and there's nothing wrong with that. I love animals. But at the same time, millions upon millions of babies are aborted every year. Just think about the absurdity of that the world is upside down. Like we elevate the creature above the creator and we do what we want to do. And those children that are not alive today, those souls that have been like not given the opportunity to have a body that they were designed by the creator to have, those souls had rights as well. And so when we think about this what has happened to our culture is we are being led more by rights instead of what is right. And we have left the very creator who has designed us. And so things man are just they're chaotic. And so we could look at so many different instances in, in, in the world. I used the one example, and I won't take time to give you more. What I would challenge you to do is, as you live your life this week, just ask yourself the question, where am I seeing things upside down? And where, what, would, what would right side up to the Lord look like? And where is this upside down? And you will see it. It's everywhere. It's in our entertainment. It's in, it's in our, 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 you know, the way that our friends and, and even sometimes the way we live And I think that's what the Lord is asking us to do is look at your life and and ask yourself the question as you yield to the word, where are you living in an upside down way? And he wants to help you flip it right side up. And when it gets flipped right side up because he's the one who created it, the freedom will flow into your life. And so my challenge for you today is to look at the word and go, man, it is from the Lord and it will do all of these things in your life. And the world like your friend, like let's not even say the world. Your friends and your family need you to be people of the word because they will learn freedom from your life as you walk in obedience. They will see you're not a religious person. You're a person that has righteousness, that God has put it in you and you are walking out through supernatural power, what God has done in your life. And that is, that is the heart cry and mission of the Lord. That is how we go forth with the authority of Christ to make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. We become disciples ourselves. So as you bow in a spirit of prayer, and we just kind of rest in this, like I think today is a, is a, is a word that we can just kind of receive And meditate on it. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at www.overlandpark.cc.